0: Neymar partiu, bateu! Gol! Oh! Oh! Vadinho rápido right? oh! esquerda, levantou a bola tocou pro ataque e foi Ed! E Ed, soltou!
1: He's gone through the whole lot of them. Unbelievable, unbelievable. Well, it's a stratospheric transfer fee they're talking about, and quite honestly, he looks on another planet in this game. You
2: Perhaps, but I'd beg like to differ. I think
3: mm-hmm. it might be a little bit of a cultural thing. I, part of south american football and part of brazilian football you see time and time again this personality exists in south american football
2: uh, leo should have been cautioned or sent off that you, you can't be doing that but the reaction of neymar some people like you just mentioned there will say someone of that playing ability shouldn't lower himself to behaving like that but i don't think it's anything to do with ability it's a personality i think
0: talent wise without question neymar food best in the world behind behind you two you mentioned but it, it comes down to... I, I don't know how you... I do think me But so these, so these have them them. They,
3: they happen, share. and
2: they're accepted And I don't like to tell
1: name them Name-like to be to talk about. He's absolutely in a way that he's absolutely okay. He's seeking in a to the He likes the show being all about him. He's pictured going off the train to pitch today. He's grand. He is grand.
3: Hello, listeners. This is PSG Talk contributor Mark Damon alongside... Chase Hayslip from Canary in Blue. And this is the introduction for our podumentary, for lack of a better term, Neymar the Iconoclast.
2: Yeah, Mark, it's been something we've worked on for a couple months now. Uh, it's been in the, in the works for what feels like forever, uh, but just the ultimate um, sort of podcast exploring the life and times of Neymar, how he's treated by the media, and his personality uh, and playing style. I'm, cu- I'm excited You'll- about it
3: you'll be hearing different voices uh this is my voice you obviously just heard chase you'll also be hearing from robbie blakely and you will be hearing from jean olangi of psg talk so sit back and relax and enjoy the show in life we search for comfort through the trials and tribulations we rely on constants that carry through the years Institutions that encourage us to turn off our consciousness and become a part of the many. It is this submission that makes us one with the collective human experience. But within its embrace, are we ever truly alive? We may be content, but at what price? It is in this state of content that we become repelled to the different, and in defense of our collective values brand different as rebellion. Rebellion that must be quashed at all costs. And what of the strange men and women who lead these rebellions? In their lifetime, they may be seen as radicals, spit upon as they are carted through the streets, mocked like circus clowns, and ultimately sacrificed to the altar of consistency, normality, and antiquity. These villains of the present will ultimately become the heroes of the future. And this is because ultimately their message outlives and outgrows them. Because the institutions need to be challenged, questioned, and even mocked. Without the iconoclast, we lose our humanity, our ability to be truly free. Football and sports, in the end, are just one big metaphor for life. And just like life, we default to the norms and expect others to do the same. Toes on the line. Do as we say and not as we do. Unquestioned loyalty is what we demand. Damn the consequences. However, sometimes it's not what we want that saves us, but it's what we need that saves us. Sometimes a person comes along to, unwittingly or not, take a torch and attempt to burn the institutions down. Everything you once knew lying in ashes on the floor robbing the castle of its riches and leaving nothing behind. Or, in destroying the status quo, leaving everything behind. It's the iconoclast that changes the world, that changes football. Like many before him, it is Neymar who finds himself in the middle of the storm, a prodigy from birth, who has rebelled against the very system that created him. He is not beholden to the club system, or to the owners who pay his salary, or to the fans who come to the stadiums. He is only beholden to his personal journey, one which the world can see, but can never truly be a part of. He seeks to recreate football in his own image. In spurning Barcelona, he took his mission statement, walked directly up to the doors of football's church, and nailed them down with authority. Like Martin Luther before him, a rebel of his own time, for his own time, a figure derided and chastised, a character not without his flaws, and a man not without his demons. However, it is not the details that define the iconoclast, but the overall message they deliver. In Neymar's case, it is that immortality can be achieved outside the institution, Through multi-layered branding and expert negotiating. Neymar outsmarted Barcelona, and by choosing Paris Saint-Germain, joined forces with another iconoclast to anger the entire football world. Everything about Neymar is a controversy. His smile, his laugh, his demeanor, his playing style, and even his family. He is reviled and hated by ex-players, pundits, journalists, and fans. On the other hand, he is loved by anyone who has ever played with him and the millions of fans around the world who adore him. It's a polarizing dichotomy. He is the artist that within his own time may not be truly understood, encapsulated by his own greatness in a way that alienates the critics, who critique the form but never truly appreciate the ambition. But as an artist, you can also describe him as tortured, with many of the wounds that cover him self-inflicted. Neymar is as complicated as art itself, as life itself. Neymar is a lot of things. He is a millennial, a bull, a brand, a villain, and a legacy. But above all else, he is a man with his own idea of how the world should work for him. An addiction to fun, but an even stronger addiction to fame. He's here to be himself and nobody else, whether you like it or not. This is Neymar, the Iconoclast.
2: To begin to analyze Neymar, you must start at the start. He's a millennial, part of a generation that broadly encompasses people born between the early 1980s and the early 2000s. One could argue that he is the first true millennial superstar in global football. Although Messi and Ronaldo are both technically millennials, having been born in 1987 and 1985, respectively, it's Neymar that takes the traits of the generation to heart. And for many people, that's an issue. The term millennial was first coined in the 1980s, and of course, the study of generational differences goes back, well, generations. But to many people a description of the key characteristics of this generation didn't find its way into the front of their face until 2013 when time magazine produced a cover story titled quote the me, me, me generation unquote written by Joel Stein. The article lays out the fundamental traits of millennials. And it's here that we begin to understand Neymar, what defines him, what makes him human. And it's also here that we begin to cut at the core of the criticism of him. It's not difficult to see that many of the arguments about the generation at large can be applied to the generation's biggest footballing star. Let's start with his narcissism, his obsession with fame. Neymar wants to be liked, but he's also very self-involved, very self-focused. It is core to his way of relating, his social media presence, and his curated brand. For many older football supporters, it is off-putting simply because it is not what they've come to expect from superstar footballers. It's me-centric instead of us-centric. But according to Stein, it's unsurprising given Neymar is a millennial. Stein begins his article with cold, hard data about millennials, writing that, quote, The incidence of narcissistic personality disorder is nearly three times as high for people in their 20s as for the generation that's now 65 or older, according to the National Institute of Health. Fifty-eight percent more college students scored higher on a narcissism scale in 2009 to 1982. Millennials got so many participation trophies growing up that a recent study showed that 40 percent believe that they should be promoted every two years, regardless of performance. They are fame-obsessed. Three times as many high school girls want to grow up to be a personal assistant to a famous person as want to be a senator, according to a 2007 survey. Four times as many would pick the assistant job over CEO of a major corporation. They're so convinced of their own greatness that the National Study of Youth and Religion found that the guiding morality of 60% of millennials in any situation is that they'll be able to just feel what's right. Unquote. And so the picture of Neymar starts to become clearer. His narcissism is reflective of a greater generational movement. Along the same lines, Neymar is mission-driven, bound only by what he sees as living his best self, and he couldn't care less about the institutions you find important, or the establishment finds important. He's too busy pushing player power in European and global football to its tipping point, where the superstar retains control of his own rights, his own supporter base, and his own brand, which is arguably bigger than the club who is paying him. How else can you explain his dismissal of Barcelona, the biggest club in the world, or leaving behind Messi, who every pundit player and supporter around the world believes everyone should be grateful to play alongside? or his toying with Real Madrid while he's still at PSG. The average millennial has seven jobs by the time they're 26 because they are pursuing their own truth. Neymar is no different. He just happens to be doing it in one of the most scrutinized professions in the world, where the institution of the club is considered sacrosanct. Don't believe me? Let's return to Stein. He writes that millennials are, quote, the most threatening and exciting generation since the baby boomers brought about social revolution, not because they're trying to take over the establishment, but because they're growing up without one. The Industrial Revolution made individuals far more powerful. They could move to a city, start a business, read and form organizations. The information revolution has further empowered individuals by handing them the technology to compete against huge organizations. Hackers versus corporations. Bloggers versus newspapers. Terrorists versus nation states. YouTube directors versus studios. App makers versus entire industries. Millennials don't need us. That's why we're scared of them. Unquote. Here we find one of the most critical truths about Neymar. And again, it's generationally driven. And it's why many supporters find him to be anathema to the values they hold about the beautiful game. So much of the negative perception of Neymar starts and ends with these traits. It starts and ends with the way an entire generation is perceived, and the fact that the European football complex has not come face-to-face with a talent who embodies the characteristics of this generation. If it wasn't Neymar, perhaps it would be another player from Neymar's age bracket, Antoine Griezmann, who came under fire for his Law Decision video, James Rodriguez, who has been criticized for his attitude and Flash and his open desire to be a Galactico, or maybe even Eden Hazard, who teased out his move from Lille to Chelsea for months via subtle clues on his Twitter account. Neymar is the best of this crop of players, so he receives the lion's share of attention. But if it wasn't him, it would likely be someone else. Stein begins his article for Time Magazine writing, quote, They are not only the biggest generation we've ever known, but maybe the last birth grouping that will be easy to generalize about, unquote. Perhaps if we begin to perceive Neymar in the context of his generation, we can begin to understand who he really is.
3: So, Chase, while we were prepping for this, you really made an interesting point to me about how European football has changed over the last 10 years, specifically about the branding of it. I'd like you to go into detail on that if you can.
2: Sure. No, it's a really interesting concept. And I sort of refer to it as the NBAification of European football, which is a really interesting trend that we're really seeing across both the European game and honestly around the world. The NBA, the National Basketball Association, is um, probably right now the second most popular sport in the United States um, behind American football, Uh, but it is growing very quickly. and A lot of people believe that it will soon surpass the uh, American Football League in the United States in popularity. Um, And the NBA is actually surging in popularity around the world as well. The Chinese market for them is huge. Uh, Other Asian markets have done really well for them. And also, it is becoming huge in Europe. Um Last year, the NBA hosted a, a one of its games, I think it was between the 76ers and the Celtics in London. and it was basically the who's who of the Premier League and the who's who of uh, European football for attendees. Many footballers from around uh, Europe attended the attended the game and sort of mixed with the players, uh, the NBA players and, and got autographs and took photos and all these types of things. And I think that as the NBA becomes more popular around the world, The culture of player power within the NBA is becoming more and more a part of European football. And I think it really scares people, to be honest. And let me explain a little bit what I mean by that. In the NBA, the brand of the player is more important than the brand of the team. That is just how it works. The players have most of the negotiating power when it comes to negotiating contracts, um, how this... Especially the star players have a lot of say as to how the teams are built, and the teams are often built around the star player. They have they have most of the decision-making authority around which players are brought in and which players leave rather than the general manager. And this is something, as the NBA becomes more popular around the world, that I think European footballers are looking to as a guide for how they want to sort of take off in their own career. From a very young age, I think Neymar has been very curious about the NBA and about branding. Um, One of the very interesting stories about Neymar when he was at Santos uh, was his dad uh, sat down with the then uh, footballing director at uh, Chelsea, who were very interested in bringing in Neymar at that time, and presented a PowerPoint presentation to Neymar Sr. about how Neymar could be – Basically, Chelsea's Michael Jordan, uh, in that the Chicago Bulls were not very popular when Michael Jordan arrived there. But when he left, not only was Michael Jordan the greatest player in the world, but the Bulls had become an amazing brand as well. So he had pulled up the brand on his own and become the face of the organization. And I think uh, one of the onlookers for that meeting said it was the first time ever that Neymar Sr. attended an entire meeting without looking at his cell phone. And so I think that this this, this, this concept of player power... Uh, being a big part of the game has been a part of Neymar's entire career and his trajectory. He's always built a brand around himself, but I think he's become the face of a changing European landscape as well. And I think market rubs people the wrong way because I think it is ultimately changing the way we perceive the players, especially in relation to how they, uh, how we perceive the clubs.
3: And you, you talk about Neymar Sr., and I feel like he has always been the spearhead of this Neymar marketing push. And I think from the very beginning, I feel like he understood that to maximize the potential um profit that his son could gain for himself and for his, uh, for the rest of his family, Neymar would have to be more than just a football player inserted sort of into the machine Yes. and the way it has sort of worked before Neymar and before to that extent Ronaldo is that players were very much replaceable and yes they could be famous in their own time and they could be valuable but in the end the team was always sort of able to replace and turn over and keep moving forward. Barcelona, Real Madrid, They are star factories and they have the best players in the world, but the best players in the world, they get older and those players eventually age out and they bring in new players on cheaper contracts. Neymar, I think, and Neymar Sr. in particular, have really decided that Neymar's fate will not be tied to one particular club or one particular organization that neymar is going to be a master of his own fate a captain of his own soul and that the key to that is is his branding the key to that is having so many sponsorship deals that are outside of the club's control so a key to that is having a large social media presence in a time where a lot of athletes even have more social media followers Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter than the clubs do. And I feel like maybe Neymar Sr. didn't see that whole picture from the beginning, but I do think he was the person that without him, this would not have been possible.
2: I completely agree. And I think that we're seeing it with players throughout Europe. And I just just think Neymar is the most immediate example, right? He is the one that is sort of most... I I I always hazard to use the word shameless, but he is sort of the most shameless about it, right? That his career is sort of a branding exercise in and of itself. But I think when you think about a greetsman who does La Decisión Cis- De video, right? Ronaldo, um, all the stories that have come out about his desire to sort of brand himself when he moved to Juventus in the way that... Um, I love the story about how Real Madrid, what they lose, like, you know, some obscene number of followers, you know, what I mean? when Ronaldo left to go to Juventus or, or something like that. What we're seeing is this rising tide of sort of player popularity and player branding. And it stands that they are ultimately going to be in charge of their own fate rather than letting the clubs do it. And I think. Let's shift this conversation a little bit over as to why this is a bad, why people perceive this as a bad thing, right? And why Neymar is perceived negatively because of these decisions. But before we do that, I just want to say that I just think Neymar, I don't think Neymar is the only player doing this. I just think he's the, he's sort of, he's the first player to do it so openly and to not hide it and not to pretend that he's not doing it, right? And so I think as time passes, we will only see other players continue to move along this path. But the negative perception of Neymar is that he's the first to do it so directly. Yes,
3: And part of this, too, is that Neymar and his team have built this sort of corporation around him. And there's a lot of names that you don't hear a lot of, a name like Pini Zahavi, the Israeli um, power broker that has sort of been behind the, some of the bigger deals, especially uh, the Abramovich buying Chelsea deal and the Neymar to PSG move, various amounts of agents and go-betweens. It really, if you look at the Neymar brand and the structure of his organization, it is like, it is like a business. It's like a Fortune 500 company. And a lot of the times you see athletes, it's sort of the athlete and their agent. And that's sort of the layering of the, of the power structure. Neymar has a whole group of people that sort of shelter him in the sense that he's not really tasked with. He's involved in the negotiation, but he is not tasked with a lot of those major decisions. He has a lot of people around him giving him advice. He's not somebody that's going to be taken advantage of in a contract negotiation. If you look at the way PSG and Neymar got together, I've compared it often to a corporate merger in that these are two fairly even entities. You are two even parties entering into an agreement, a mutually beneficial agreement. And a lot of the times it's not like that. More or less it's about the club sort of dictating terms and the player kind of agreeing to the most agreeable least uh least bad option and Neymar has found a way I think in his career to put himself in a position to make the most possible money that he can and that has included sort of creating the structure around himself that again mirrors more of a corporation than the typical athlete even a top-level athlete like a Paul Pogba or an Antoine Griezmann, Neymar is just in a whole different stratosphere when it comes to that. And I feel like that sort of branding turns some people off, and you talk about that. It turns them off because it forces them to look at the sport in a way that they don't want to. I think everyone knows that there's a certain level of business that goes into this, but the fact that Neymar has sort of said, This is a business for me. I am going to make as much money as I can. I still love the game. I still play hard every day. I still have that passion. But I will not be taken advantage of by corporations, by greedy owners, by coaches. And it's, I think, a shock to a lot of people who, especially in European football, have been uh, conditioned to think of brand of the club over everything. Yeah. And it's it's this, it's this culture shock to them and they're not quite sure how to take it. And I think a lot of people when they're initially faced with change, see it as a bad thing and they just are instantly repelled from it. But over time you kind of get used to it.
2: Yeah. I, I think it just makes people very uncomfortable. Right. And I think the way that we shift this conversation is to talk about Basically, why it makes people uncomfortable, and I think a lot of it is to do with the fact that I think as supporters, a lot of us have sort of turned a blind eye to the fact that the clubs, football clubs, are changing very rapidly, right? And I think, and, and I want to start this this part of the conversation by saying, I'm not happy with the way that it's changing. I'm, I'm devastated by the way that it's changing, but it is changing, right? And I think to pretend that it's not is to sort of turn a blind eye to reality, right? These clubs were started in some cases over a hundred years ago, right? And they were started as a bastion of the community, as a reflection of the city that they are located in, um, as cultural icons, basically, in a way to, um, share pride, you know, for local communities. And I think that's a really beautiful thing. And a lot of times, you know, as the clubs progressed, um, during the, you know, the 1950s, the 1960s, 1970s, 1980s, it became a, a community place, you know, like the local pub, basically, where people could go, um, and be part of something bigger than themselves, be part of a community that they were brought up in. Um, a lot of people attended matches and sat in the same seats that their parents sat in and the same seats that their grandparents sat in. And that's a beautiful thing. My thing is, though, the clubs over the last 20 or 30 years have basically become mega corporations. And I think that all of this stuff around community. Is basically a facade. I don't think it's real anymore. I, th- I think that they, and I, I, and I, and I say that knowing full well that there are pieces of it, you know what I mean, that are still intact. But overall, I think the clubs have basically moved themselves into the category of business corporations, right? And the biggest, the greatest victory for the owners of these clubs has been to convince supporters that they, and the players owe the club some sort of loyalty that the club does not show back. Um, and I think that that's a key part of this, right, is that is a club part of a mutually beneficial relationship when it charges its fans 60, 70 pounds for, to go to a game? Is a club part of a mutually beneficial relationship when when a player is performing badly after after having a couple legendary seasons at the club they simply tell him to f off is that a mutually beneficial relationship or is that just a business and basically it's consumers and employees right and so to start the, the 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 realization for me is that neymar has realized that he is bringing value to a company and that he should be basically in charge of his own destiny and be able to take equity for his, for his performances. And I think that that really bothers people because I don't think that people want to see the clubs that they support that way. They want to see the clubs that they support, Maskayun Club, you know, part of the community, bastings of the community. But the reality is that times have changed. I don't think it's for the better, but times have changed and things have changed. And, and the players need to put themselves in a position now where they're not taken advantage of by these clubs.
3: And I would say the slight disagreement I might have with you is that I think, yes, would it be in a perfect world would we all be doing this for free or for very little money? Would they be – would this be sort of a passion for people as opposed to a way to make a living? Yeah, but as long as football is a way for athletes to make a living, for men and women to make a living, for these corporations to make money – I think we're better off with the players and the management on equal footing. Yes, I think the the more the power structure tilts to the owners, or even the more that the power structure tilts towards the players, I think when there's an imbalance, that's when you have, I think, the most negative consequences. And you looked at, and I'll, I'll go back a very long time to when... Hollywood actors and actresses used to be on contracts with large movie studios that would basically shuffle them from film to film. And basically, no matter how popular they were, for the most part, especially if you were women, but in any case, you would basically be under the auspices of this large movie studio. Eventually, the power dynamics shifted. And as we are now, most movies are star driven. You know, 20th Century Fox, Disney, if they're going to put out a movie, you need a star in it. And that star is going to be able to dictate terms. It's part of being in the entertainment business. And Neymar is in the entertainment business. Sports are entertainment. And if he's going to be the sort of leading man, the star, he has the right to sort of dictate his own terms. And it's what made the Neymar to PSG transfer so unique, which is that people had used the release clause before, but never for a player of the magnitude of Neymar, never for that level of money, never for that price. And Barcelona had no control over that decision. Barcelona were bystanders in the whole thing, and it was the first time where a player pretty much single-handedly, through his team, through his management team, orchestrated his own exit in a way that the management of the club couldn't actually have any say in. Now, Ronaldo leaving for Juventus this year, Ronaldo could have said he wanted to leave all he wanted, but Real Madrid had to get an offer worth selling him, And they had to want to sell him to sell him. So Real Madrid had a stake in that game. And Barcelona did not. And that's why I think it left people so salty and so angry that the club was just sort of ignored in that way. And I think people saw it as sort of a disrespect when I sort of don't look at it that way. I look at it like Neymar made a business decision, just like... Barcelona makes the business decisions they make, just like they decided to, instead of sponsor, being sponsored by UNICEF, they decided to be sponsored by Qatar Airways. They made a business decision. Qatar Airways paid them a lot of money, and they're, they got the sponsorship. Eventually, Rocketon paid a lot of money and got the sponsorship. That's how corporations work. And Neymar, as a corporation, can get his own sponsorship. He can get sponsored by Gillette by, uh, Gaga Milano, the watch company, by Nike. He doesn't need to worry about sort of, Hey, you know, Neymar can make millions and millions of dollars without ever playing, you know, another without game. ever really playing another game. And that rubs people the wrong way. And there's so many dynamics to that, that we could get into at some point, but we'd be here all night. That's, I think, the, 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 crux of a player using their power and using the power of their brand to benefit themselves in a way that hadn't really been seen before. Yeah, I completely agree.
2: And I think we'll get into this when we talk about Neymar's legacy later on this podcast, but this is the greatest thing that he leaves behind, right? Yes. It's his desire to forge his own destiny, to make his own path, to be his own person, Often when discussing Neymar, there is a component missing in the conversation, his characteristics as a player. Watching Neymar play football is to experience raw, untempered magic. Messi and Ronaldo have spent the past decade dominating European and global football with ruthless efficiency. Their prowess is marked by the fact that opposition defenders understand exactly what they are trying to do, and yet cannot seem to stand in their way. Neymar is different. It's his unpredictability that is appealing. His desire to do things that no one has ever seen before, his desire to make defenders look foolish in his wake, His desire to often do things the hard way simply because they are hard. That's what separates him. Great sculptors do not feel grief for the marble that ends up on the floor as they seek to create a masterpiece. So Neymar feels about the defenders he leaves on the floor behind him. They are simply pieces of marble which must be discarded such that his art may come to fruition. Anyone who has watched Neymar over the course of his career can point to a multitude of such moments. Last May, Brazil played a preparatory match ahead of the World Cup against Austria. The match was held at the Ernst Hospital Stadium in Vienna a city which Karl Krauss once described as having sidewalks paved with culture. For those 60,000 fans on hand to watch this friendly, culture was seen in the form of Neymar's performance. During the second half, as Austria began to wilt, he received the ball on the left side of the penalty area. For the 60 minutes that preceded this moment, Neymar had been surrounded by three or four Austrians each time he touched the ball. His shirt pulled endlessly, his ankles kicked without mercy. But in the 63rd minute, after a brilliant pass by his compatriot, Willian, he was allowed that little bit of space with the ball at his feet facing the Austrian defender, Alexander Dragovich. An almost undetectable fainted right foot curler into the corner, followed by Neymar dragging the ball under his foot to the left, was enough to short-circuit the connection between Dragovich's brain and his legs, and he fell backwards to the floor as one might slip and fall in the shower. Though Neymar's trickery seemed to move in slow motion, in real time, this feint took less than a second, and in that brief passage of time, Dragovich, a professional defender playing for a reputable national football team, transitioned from a well-positioned obstacle to a complete non-factor. Having disposed of the defender, Neymar then turned his attention to the goalkeeper, placing the ball directly between Heinz Linder's legs. Before Austria even had time to contemplate the consequences of Neymar isolated against a defender, he had added two opposition players to his collection of highlight reel victims, and given Brazil a 2-0 lead. Members of both the traditional media and social media gawked at his brilliance, but it was just another day at the office for Neymar. He's a genius, a generational talent, one of the best players we'll watch in our collective lifetimes. I'm joined by Robbie Blakely, a freelance journalist uh, from Rio de Janeiro uh, and someone who has followed Neymar for quite a long time. Robbie, thanks so much for being on Neymar, the iconoclast.
1: No, thanks. uh, Thanks for having me on. Always a pleasure. Absolutely. Uh, Robbie,
2: I think during the World Cup, we podcasted a ton um, over the course of Brazil's journey. And one of the things that you and I always touched on was sort of the, the the media's coverage of Neymar, and this podcast is sort of focused on how we perceive him. One of the things that I think is often missed from the conversation is what an absolute genius that he is on the pitch. Um, so much of the conversation, I think, happens outside the white lines. What do you think it is, first and foremost, that sort of attracts you to him, to, to his game? What What is it that sort of makes him so special
1: as a player? Um, well, you know, living in Brazil, you... you you are, you know, surround and, and covering football. You are surrounded by sort of a, a never-ending production line of talent, sort Of the the next big thing to come off that production line, and who's gonna who's gonna be the next star to to play for Brazil or to to, to move to a major European club? Um, and there was that chapter about Neymar, close to close to ten years ago now. And when he came through. Um, that when he came through, he was like, he was this, this, this slight thing. His he, he you know, his frame did, didn't look much more than a boy. Um, but when you saw him with a, with a ball at his feet, uh, it was, it was like, like he was, like he was playing with um, uh, kids on the beach or in the park or something like that. He had, um he had a, a fear, a fearlessness when, when, when he was with the ball, taking, taking on defenders. And it it was just one of those joys to watch. There are players that come along, you know, Ronaldinho is an, an obvious example. Uh, players who come along who, who make you watch, who sit back and, and, and appreciate what they're doing, and see the, see the game at a different level. And Neymar was one of those players, and he's someone who has just gone on and on and on, from from, from Santos to to the PSG, in Brazil. Um, and Brazil. And something that that people seem to forget sometimes is he's still only twenty six. Yeah, there's still so much more he can offer, and he's. He's the focal point of his PSG side, and he's the focal point of Chichi's Brazil team, which is a side that is loaded with with, a, with hugely talented attacking players. And Neymar is still the one that drives that side forward. He's, he, he's When he's on his game, just an absolute joy to watch. Yeah, I think um, probably the biggest compliment
2: you can give Neymar is that for the last five years or so, and I think for probably the next 20 years, the commentary is always when a young player is coming out of Brazil, right? Whether it's uh, Vinicius Jr. or Rodrigo Goez now, it's they're yeah. the next Neymar. That's how they're described now. And I think it's a compliment to what he achieved, not only in Brazil, but what he's now achieved abroad. Um, in his that every player that comes after him is going to be compared to him. And I think that that's actually the biggest compliment you can give any player. Um, what I love about Neymar when I personally watch him is, I think that there are a lot of misconceptions about his game that he's selfish. And I think it's because he does so many uh tricks, you know, you know, he's someone who likes to go past a player. That is one thing that makes the game fun to watch, so I don't want to diminish that, but it's his ability to get his teammates involved. I think that's a kind of an under appreciated aspect of his game is his his just knack for feeding the ball to teammates, to getting assists, uh to working the ball through the middle to players who can who can then make Uh, make plays themselves. I think he is someone who fundamentally makes his teammates better. And I think that that's one of the
1: greatest gifts that he brings to the game. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. I think you hit the nail on the head there. He's one of those players who, I mean, not only the fans sort of quicken their step when they're on the way to the stadium to watch him play, but he, he, he just, his mere presence can improve those around him, can inspire those around him. And, I'm sure you remember the, the, the World Cup water final against Belgium mm-hmm. when, uh, when, when Brazil lost 2-1. Um, and in that second half, every single time, Neymar was looking for the ball. He's, he's not someone who disappears at difficult times. You can see players who sort of drift in and out of games, or they look very good when the, when the going's good, um, when the going's easy and the team's sort of 2 or 3-0 up and coasting. It was, it was a hugely important game for Brazil, and they were on the verge of World Cup elimination. It's the focus of the team, the public, in the media. It was obvious that he was going to be become, in, on some level, a scapegoat for any sort of Brazil elimination. Even so, he didn't hide. He was looking for that ball at every single opportunity. And he's, um, he takes on the responsibility of leading that Brazil attack. And you know, more often than not, he does it with a plum. Absolutely. One of my favorite things that you and I talked about during the World Cup, Robbie, was,
2: um, you know, I think we both believe Coutinho is a brilliant player. Um, he's an amazing, amazing player. But when he was playing without Neymar and the Brazil team while he was hurt, he was effective, right? But he becomes world class when Neymar's in the team, right? The defense has to program differently when Neymar's on the pitch, yeah. and it allows Coutinho to play. And and it, it's also just the, his ability to one-two with Coutinho and just make him become even even more
1: brilliant player than he is already. I mean, yeah. I mean, I, I, I don't want to sound like a broken record because I've said this. I've said a lot of things about Neymar and like a few criticisms of, uh, of Coutinho in the past. But I believe it was the friendly against Croatia that they played at Anfield before the World Cup, where it was that was that point was really amplified. Uh, Neymar was, was still coming back from his, from his injury at PSG and hadn't played for, I think it was something like 98 days. Cucino started the game and had a relatively quiet first half. It was only when Neymar came on in the second period um, and the Croatian defence was sort of automatically drawn to him, the space started to open up and Cucino could drive from deep into that space. And that's how the first goal was created in that game. It was Neymar creating space for Coutinho. Coutinho ran into the space, picked the pass, and Neymar scored um, a wonderfully taken goal on his, on his return. Absolutely. And it's like, it's that sort of thing. It's not just Coutinho. You know, Jesus and William and, and, and Paulinho and Renato Augusto, whoever's going to play in that middle and on the other hand, on the other side of the attack it's always going to benefit from Neymar being there because, as like we said, he is the fo- focal point. People are drawn to him. People are afraid. Opposition players are afraid of what he's going to do. Yeah. So whether they want it cool. or not, it's almost like a subconscious thing they're drawn to him, and that in turn opens up space for other players. Yeah. Do you have a favorite Neymar performance, Robbie? Um, I'm going to talk about the 2011 um, Neymar-Ronaldinho game for Santos and Flamengo, which finished 5-4 to Flamengo. Ronaldinho scored three and Neymar scored two. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, I mean, it was one of those fairytale moments when you just see sort of about like the past generation and the future generation uniting on the pitch, and to see those two players playing in such an epic game, I always, I always look back on that game and smile. It was, it was it, if that was football at its best. It's probably the best football game I've ever seen. Absolutely. And just Absolutely. a quick,
2: quick plug for Robbie because he won't do it himself. His article for Bleacher Report on that match is brilliant. You should definitely check that out. Um, for me, you know, I think the obvious one is the performance for Barcelona against PSG in his last season at the club. Yep. You know, he engineers. I think it's three goals in the last ten minutes for them to come back. so much of the plaudits in that match went to other people, but it was Neymar's win, and I think it speaks a lot to his ability to shine under the under the bright lights that he was ultimately the one that carried them back into that match and, and sort of brought them uh brought them into the grand stage um Robbie very briefly, you know as someone who lives in brazil he, what do you think it means? Can you just talk a little bit about the weight of the shirt, the weight of the number 10 for Brazil? It is probably the most iconic, the most weighty shirt in football, wouldn't you say? And he's always having to live up to those expectations in the big moments.
1: Yeah, I mean, I mean, Brazil's the most successful nation in the history of international football. They've got five World Cups to their name. but they haven't reached a World Cup final since 2002. And, and that's a source of, it's, it, I mean, the World Cup is a source of great pride to Brazil, and the fact that they haven't managed to do that again. Um, I wouldn't say it's a source of embarrassment, but it's more like a source of, of angst. So every time that they don't make it, the pressure increased. I mean, I would, as a comparison, I would use the example of Argentina, who haven't won a trophy since the, the, the 1993 Copa America. And every time Argentina are in a tournament, everyone talks about that. It's now 25 years since they last won a tournament, so the pressure increased. I I think when it comes to Brazil, they have the, they have, you have the Confederations Cup, you have the World Cup qualifiers, and you have the, the the Copa America. And the Copa America isn't taken quite so seriously in Brazil as, for example, the European Championships are in, in, in Europe. I think it will be next year because Brazil are the hosts. But for Brazil, the focus is almost purely on that World Cup. So that when it comes around, the pressure has been built and built and built and built and built up, just increasing, especially in the in the weeks and the months beforehand. So to deal with that with that sort of pressure, that sort that demand from a public who want a a, a, a sixth World Cup trophy, is is an enormous emotional strain for anyone. But for the man who, who who has to take the number ten shirt and who has to lead those attacks, it it takes in an, yeah, an enormous amount of mental strength to be able to do that. And I thought. Neymar did it well uh, in Russia. It was, I mean, the result wasn't the, uh, the intended result, clearly. But I, I thought, coming back from injury, he was slightly worse in the game against Switzerland. But he grew with each game. And I thought Neymar was getting stronger and stronger with each game at that World Cup. And it was, it was a huge shame that they went out when they did. Because I thought they were slightly the better team. Absolutely. Um, if you had
2: one sentence, Robbie, to describe Neymar to someone who had never watched football before and you were just trying to get them into the sport, what would you, how would you describe him?
1: I'd probably describe him as an artist. Yeah. Yeah. Someone who can, yeah, like I said before, someone who can, who can make you quicken your step on the way to the stadium, who can, who can make you almost fall in love with football, who can make you want to follow football or follow Neymar, at least.
2: Yeah. Absolutely. Couldn't have said it better myself.
3: Amongst the brilliance can also lie madness. From the minute Neymar appeared on the European stage, it became apparent that while he was already a fantastic player, much was left to learn. A ferocious dribbler who drove relentlessly towards the defense, Neymar's style is often betrayed by his size, which is a deficiency in a game filled with big, burly adults. His compensation would be the embellishment and flopping that many associate with the Brazilian's game. Flipping and rolling on the floor to the jeers and consternation of fellow players and the public is not a great look for any global superstar. Neymar can sometimes be described as a bull, stubborn, bordering on naive arrogance, charging the red cape only to have it yanked away, coming back for more, and having it yanked away again. Other criticisms flow Neymar's direction as well. He's selfish, he fails to heed the etiquette of the game, and has a whiny demeanor. It is all this and more that clouds our perception of Neymar the player. Is he a footballing genius, a footballing clown, or both? It's complicated. Neymar to Paris Saint-Germain was the footballing equivalent of an earthquake. Like an earthquake, It had a simple cause, but was followed by an untold amount of effects that we feel still one year later. In October of 2016, after reported conversations with Neymar and PSG personnel, FC Barcelona decided to renegotiate and extend the contract of their Star of the Future. Neymar inked a new deal that would keep him at the club until 2021. However, in Spanish football, exit clauses exist. Most of the time, it's a formality, and because the exit clause is usually much higher than market value, not seen as a realistic way to extract a player from their club situation. In this case, the clause was set at 222 million euros, astronomical in relation to the market. At the moment Neymar and his representative signed the deal, did they know did they have an inkling of an idea that leaving through the clause was a possibility? I would think so. I mean, how could they not? Maybe Neymar himself wasn't thinking it at the time, but his people negotiated the clause high, but not high enough where it couldn't be triggered if need be. So the season progressed, the 6-1 happened, and the last thing on anyone's mind was the hostile takeover that was about to come. PSG were about to storm the castle and take the treasure. It took a lot of machinations and maneuvering to turn this Parisian dream into a reality. They first had to hide any negotiations with Neymar's camp from the ever-vigilant media until it was too late for Barcelona to mount a significant counter-offensive. It took secrecy, expert bean counting, and literally zero margin for error. So when Marcelo Bessler reported that Neymar had chosen PSG, it came as a shock. So shocking, in fact, that most of the mainstream soccer media laughed at him and the story. They were 200% sure Neymar wouldn't leave the Barcelona Abbey for the Parisian Bordello. However, this was no laughing matter it was very much a reality. Neymar never refuted the information, and even when Gerard Piquet demanded se queda, Neymar held se ferma and never tipped his hand. It was the steal of the century, a virtual pickpocketing in the city street, and the Barcelona board was too arrogant to see it coming. So on August 3rd, 2017, Neymar told his former club that they were indeed his former club and that Paris was his defini- destination. They huffed and puffed, but could do nothing to stop the inevitable. And as the PSG lawyers arrived at the Spanish Football Federation to hand over the check, even the portly Javier Tebas and his false piety couldn't stop the inevitable and on August 4th, Neymar flew to Paris, and the deal was done. It is important to understand just how monumental this deal was in the grand scheme of football history. For the first time, a player with Neymar's talent and value had 100% control of his decision to change clubs. This was player power of the utmost potency, Barcelona could do nothing about what happened. Sure, they got a nice check that they immediately spent on Usman Dembele and eventually Philippe Coutinho, but by no means was that their plan from the beginning. PSG and Neymar had pantsed one of the world's most revered institutions. It's a dirty secret in world football that the elite of the elite, are only allowed to play for five clubs. If you are not Manchester United, Juventus, Bayern Munich, Real Madrid, or Barcelona, you are only supposed to feast on the scraps that the big clubs leave. In other words, the only reason your player isn't at one of the top five clubs is because they don't want him. PSG, with one bold move, changed the entire dynamic. Clubs like Paris Saint-Germain are not supposed to own the McLarens of world football. Maybe the mercedes benzes but not the McLarens. But in one day, the capital club changed that forever. PSG had gone to the bank, took out a bunch of money, bought themselves a McLaren, and pissed everybody off.
2: Mark, you just finished talking about Neymar moving to PSG. And I love talking to you about Neymar's perception of the media because I think you have some some really great theories, some really great ideas about basically his treatment. And it almost starts and ends in a way with his decision to move to PSG, right? The The way that the media treats him has changed fundamentally basically since he made that decision.
3: What Neymar did... By leaving Barcelona an established world power in European football to join an upstart sort of competitor, a, a competitor out of really nowhere, because PSG before 2011 was a what we would call them a medium sized club. Right. They're about as big as Manchester City were before Manchester City got their money. And probably, you say, around as big as a Roma or a Shalka. They were in that category, maybe a little bigger, but not all that much. And the way PSG got their money was through the Qatari government. PSG are owned by QSI, or whatever you want to call them. Basically, it's a sovereign wealth fund the Qataris use to amass soft power, and kind of promote Qatar through various sports ventures. Uh, We actually have a podcast on this uh, that we did about four or five months ago uh, by some uh, some of our PSG talk contributors, Guillaume and David Wood, and it was really, really good in that it fundamentally explained why Qatar owns PSG in the first place. But I say all of that to make the point that there's a large percentage of the footballing world that resents the fact that PSG sort of hit this kind of Qatari lottery and that all of their success in the Qatari era somehow has an asterisk to it in that whatever money that the Qataris are pumping into PSG is somehow fundamentally tainted or, or tarred it's not it's not the same as the money that Manchester United makes, or that Juventus makes, or that Real Madrid make, and to a certain extent, they're not wrong. But, as I always like to point out, everything that Qatar has done has essentially been legal. There's nothing that Qatar has done that has really been illegal in this case in a court of law. So a lot of the resentment that you get is more sour grapes, in my opinion, than anything that's really legitimate. You can talk about sponsorship valuations, but to me, that's sort of like jaywalking or, you know, forgetting to declare something on your taxes one time. It's not that high of a crime. So when Neymar, a player who was essentially plucked from the streets of Brazil and Marketed as the next great European player who was brought to Barcelona from Santos with great risk. Actually, the guy that the president of Barcelona, Sandro Rosselli at the time, he is now in prison partly due to what he had to do to make that Neymar deal happen. Barcelona sacrificed a lot of its reputation to try to bring Neymar in. And once Neymar decided to leave a club that had sort of made the investment in him as their next top star after Lionel Messi, to join this PSG, who are funded by a Qatari wealth fund and have no top-level real European history to speak of, I think that offended a lot of people. And I think the people that it offended more than anybody is the soccer media, because I feel like the soccer media... Has this sort of obligation, or they feel like they have this sort of obligation to keep this sacred flame and to be sort of the judge and jury of soccer purity and to sort of tell people what's right and what's wrong. And I feel like when the media saw this happen, first of all, they didn't believe it ever would. But once it did, almost like sort of when Donald Trump got elected in the United States to the presidency, The media never thought it would happen, but when it did, it sort of left everyone in a shock. It's kind of the same concept with Neymar in that the soccer media just was stunned by this. And then they got mad that this player who they saw as the next great player, the third best player in the world behind Messi and Ronaldo and the eventual heir to the throne of those two would leave Barcelona for Paris Saint-Germain, unheard of. And that, to me, is the beginning of it. That's the that's the real, um the boiling point, and that's where we lit the match and sparked this fire. And ever since then, the media have been looking for ways to delegitimize Neymar as not a great player. I think they'll readily admit that he's a great player if they're being honest with themselves. Some of them don't, but they're just being absurd. But to take him out of the conversation of potential greatest player in the world, I think they believe that when Neymar made that move, he disqualified himself. And they are now thinking of any sort of way to drive the point home that Neymar has disqualified himself. And that's where I think it sort of starts with this.
2: Yeah, and I actually think Mark, that's a great way to put it, is the disqualification of himself because I think that that is ultimately, that is ultimately how the media feels, is that by choosing to go to PSG, and it's always in sort of coded ways, right, that they refer to it, right? It's, it's that he's playing in a lesser league, right, in France for, you know what I mean, and, and quote taking the piss out of his opponents when in reality he was doing that in La Liga too, you know, but now it's unacceptable because he's playing in France, right, and. Um, the, the other ways that they de- delegitimize him is by saying that um, he is self-indulgent now that he's PSG, at PSG because he's now the main star there instead of having to sort of, quote, report to Lionel Messi. He's the main star at PSG, and so he has, he has the right to be continuously indulgent at, self-indulgent at the club. And so they have nitpicked him is how I would describe it. And that's, I think, the only way I can adequately explain the media's coverage of him is that it, it is continuous nitpicking of his decisions, of his performances outside the white lines, um, and and sometimes, occasionally, Mark, his performances inside the white lines. And I say that intentionally, uh, as to say occasionally it's, it's about his performance inside the white lines. Um, and I think we all have to sort of recognize the impact that the media has on our perception of footballers. I mean, I think... As much as we all want to admit that or, or we all want to say that we have our own perceptions and our own opinions, simply by watching a match with the commentary on, hearing what the commentators say, we're absorbing that. It's osmosis. It's like putting a tea bag in, in a cup of water, right? You are naturally sort of absorbing the opinions that are being espoused by the commentators. And I think it's even worse if you spend a lot of time on social media or if you watch what I like to call talking head shows, which is studio shows, such as ESPN FC, Monday Night Football, um, other you know, major programs like that, where the objective of the show is, is simply for a bunch of guys to sit around a table and pull opinions out of their butt for like an hour. You know. And so to the extent that you sort of engage in watching those shows, as much as we all like to say, like I said, that we watch the matches, we see with our eyes, and we have our own perceptions – a lot of our opinions are formed um, by our
3: exposure to the
2: footballing media.
3: And I think sometimes we, as as the soccer media, tries to sort of make this distinction between sort of real analysis and quote-unquote banter. And it's almost like, well, obviously we're doing banter at this point, and then there's this point where we're doing serious analysis. And I think what has happened... To the media in a lot of sports, not just football, not just soccer, but in every sport. But I would say in European football more prominently is that that sort of line between serious analysis and banter has sort of been blurred to where it's serious analysis, but it's dripping with sarcasm. It's, it's not, it's not clear always what's sort of serious and what's not. What's meant to be sort of taken as fact and what's sort of meant to be taken as this sort of lighthearted, you know, comedy segment in that sense. And I feel like Neymar has become sort of the perfect poster child for that sort of half ass analysis where it's not about sort of going in and, get, and saying, all right, here's what the statistics tell you if we're just going to look at the game statistically and we're going to look at the advanced statistics and we're going to look at the goals and assists and we're going to look at sort of how they impact the game, if you look at the numbers, by any measure, Neymar is one of the best three players on the planet. And if you look at any measure, he's also been one of the most successful players on the planet. He has about as many trophies as you could possibly ask a top star to have. He's won practically everything there is to win except for the World Cup. But that's not how he's analyzed. He's not analyzed through the lens of an objective sort of statistic-based uh, critique. He's analyzed through the banter lens. Yes. The issue will come when these analysts who dislike him for whatever reason, or they don't think he's all that great, or they just want to be contrarian, when they make a point... That is seems like it's neutral. It seems like it's a sort of a straightforward comment, but it really isn't. It, they're sort of hiding the neg, they're hiding the bias in that sort of neutral comment. And so a lot of people, that's going to sound like me, you know, sort of reaching. But if you really listen, you can hear the sort of the code words that you'll have, which is, you know, he'll have a game like he had against Real Madrid in the first leg of the Champions League and they talk about Neymar. Essentially costing PSG the game. That's what I heard. And I think a lot of them said he was being too selfish. He wasn't passing enough, even though he had the only assist of the game for PSG. But it's this, it's this half analysis and it's using certain valid criticisms of him that a lot of players have. There's a lot of, um, a lot of players that have flaws and you can pick apart someone's game pretty much if you want to all the time, but they use the valid criticisms of Neymar like the flopping or the embellishment or the fact that sometimes he may be a little vocal on the field. He gets a little petulant sometimes, but Hey, a lot of players do that. It's not just Neymar. It's like more than half of the football players in the world, but they use that, those sort of valid criticisms that really should be like five, 10 second things. And they use them to sort of make these broader, big-picture points. Neymar flops on the field. Oh, well, he's not a winner. He's not a champion. They make that jump based on the thing that they see that they can sort of pull out and say, that's something that I can hang on to, and I can make this other point that is more sort of provocative, As opposed to saying, ah, Neymar, he flopped a little bit today. He was embellishing on a couple of fouls. Okay, let's move on to the more important things. No, that's the thing we're going to focus on. Because that allows us to make a point that we want to make. And that point is that Neymar, when he left Barcelona to go to Paris Saint-Germain, abdicated his position as one of the best players in the world. And now he's fair game. Now, we're going to hammer that point home based on anything that we see in the game that could be construed as negative. And we're going to use any negative thing that happens to him as a way to prove that point, whether it be him diving or whether it be something as innocuous as him playing poker in his own house and showing that on Instagram. We're going to use that to make the point, coded or not, that Neymar is not a all-time great player, that he's not the player that he should have been. But it just comes down to the fact that a lot of this journalism, if I want to use that term, they start with a conclusion, and they work backwards to find evidence to support their conclusion. And as I've said two times already, and I'll say it again, the conclusion is that Neymar Jr., abdicated his ability to be one of the best players in the world. And now that we have that conclusion and we're not budging from it, we're going to go back and we're going to take every single thing that he does, whether it be inside the lines or outside the lines, and we're going to use that to feed the narrative that we have created, as opposed to letting the evidence take you to the right answer. And if you use the evidence to take you to the right answer, what I think it would tell you is that Neymar is still one of the best players in the world. He has his flaws that he is now trying to work through, but it doesn't really go farther than that. And that to me is not really a story. The story isn't, you know, the sto- a good, the good story they want to tell is not, Oh, Neymar left from Barcelona and went to PSG and he's completely fine. They don't want to tell that story, because that story sucks for them. It doesn't sell. The yeah. The story they want to tell is that Neymar is falling from grace because of this move that they disapproved of. It's almost in that same category, and I won't go too much longer, but it's in that same category if you have a if you have a friend that is going to get married to this woman that you don't like. And all of a sudden now you're looking at the things that he does and all of his little eccentricities and you're trying to figure out how I can sort of validate my dislike for the woman that he's going to marry through his actions and how I can sort of say, see, see, he's changed. You see, I told you he changed. He doesn't, he doesn't act like he used to act. It's all because of that woman. It's that same, it's that same dynamic.
2: Yeah, I completely agree. And I think that the narrative based component of this is unfortunately the biggest piece um, that we're all exposed to, basically as people who follow the media, is this idea. And I, I like to devise sort of the narratives that have been concocted about Neymar into three sort of broad-based categories. And, I, and you sort of alluded to them, Mark, during, uh, during your piece there. I think the first one is Neymar can't lead a team to victory. Like, he, he's not a team leader. I think that's the first one, which is – if you actually take a fact – and I want to walk through these because I think they're important. And there are, there's a facts-based approach that you can take um, that sort of dispels every single one of these. and makes you realize that the media is doing this, taking tangible things that we can all see and all touch, watching Neymar flop on the pitch, watching him talk to the referee, watching him do certain things. We can, they're taking those things that we can all see with our eyes, and they're extrapolating them over into opinions that are categorically false, Right. So, the, hmm. first, the first one being that Neymar can't lead a team to victory. He's incapable of being a leader, both on and off the pitch. It's just false, right? When he played at Santos, they won the Libertadores for the first time since Pelé was at the club. He was the best player on the team. They won the Copa do Brasil while he was there. At Barcelona, he goes, he wins La Liga twice, he wins the Champions League, and he wins the FIFA Club World Cup. A lot of people like to say that those are Messi's trophies, but he's the only player in the history of the Champions League, in the history of the competition, to score in both legs of the quarterfinals, the both, le- both legs of the semifinals, and to score in the final. So it's not exactly like he was just sort of along for the ride as a total passenger in that team. And then at PSG, in his first season, he wins everything there is to win. For Brazil, he's won the Confederations Cup, and he won Brazil's first ever Olympic gold medal. It's not as though, and before he got injured, he had led Brazil to the semifinals of the World Cup on home soil. The idea that he cannot lead teams to victory, that he's not capable of pulling teams to victory, is so absurd based on that data, it it has to make you question the narrative that's being generated around him. So that's the first one. The second one is that he is incredibly selfish and he can't be, and, and he only thinks for himself. And that is pretty easily dispelled. It'll take me two seconds. He led uh, league on in assists last year, and he missed almost a third of the season. And at Barcelona in his last year, he o- had over 20 assists. And it's, it's an absurd conclusion that is just, it's so ridiculous. The stats don't back it up in any conceivable way.
3: Yes, and, then, and every, sorry, and every one of the teammates that has ever played with him has always spoke fondly of him. When yeah. they've had no, when they've had no other reason to tell the truth. Again, I'll, I'll put it like this. There are a lot of people who have played with Neymar, who now no longer play with Neymar, who have no reason to lie, who have no reason to hold back their opinions. Every single one of them, I think pretty much without exception. I mean, there might be one or two, but I have not heard of a teammate that has said anything bad about Neymar. He, he goes back to Barcelona training and they love him. It's not like they were let, you know, he go. He, literally, it's like he walks back into the Barcelona locker room and they all like, oh, hey, Neymar's back. Hey, let's have some, you know, let, let's let treat him like family. Let's have some fun with him. Let's take pictures with him. Gerard Piquet, think about this. Gerard Piquet, the guy who, you know, tweeted out the cicada photo, who would have every reason to think that Neymar was a snake, had the guy, if you remember, he did his own, uh, he did his own thing for, I think, The Athletic or what Was it the thing that... It was Jeter's thing, The Player Tribune. Oh, yeah. He had his own interview thing for The Player's Tribune. And the first person he interviews is Neymar. And they're all buddy-buddy and they're friends. So the idea that this guy is selfish, yet every teammate he ever has likes him, it's just... It, it's It's comical, really, to try to pass that off as an actual narrative fact. Yeah. And I think that that sort of... Goes, uh, um, couples really well
2: with my third and final point, which is that he's a he's a bad teammate in a locker room issue. And I think you've answered it for me, Mark. No teammate, no coach. Unite Emery has no reason not to say something about Neymar. If Neymar actually cost Unite Emery his job, if Neymar actually was someone who really, really caused him problems in the locker room, he has no reason not to say it now. And he hasn't. He just hasn't come out and say it. Because no one comes out and says bad. No one who plays with him. Has come out and said bad things about him in the aftermath of playing with him. And I think that speaks volumes. And I think the, those three things add up into, they create this narrative that he's a bad guy, which is actually the worst of all of the narratives. Mm-hmm. He's some sort of bad person, which, again, objectively, he's not. Like, it, it's just, it's staggering to me that this can even be a narrative that's sort of, he's never gotten into trouble he's always doing things for for kids. I just think that the media has a narrative, they have a painting that they want to paint about him, and they will ignore facts, they will ignore information, and they will ignore real tangible news to the extent it doesn't support the painting that they're trying to do.
3: Yes, and I, and I and I like to be careful when I talk about sort of the media and in the context of for lack of a better term, fake news, because I think that there has been in the last few years an assault on journalism. And I I don't think that's what we're doing. Because I want to be really careful with this when I make this point, because I think this is a really important point to make. we not all new, obviously, when we're talking about people's lives in the balance, when we're talking about politics, or we're talking about government, and we're talking about reporters that are in the trenches when they're reporting on wars and they're reporting on things that actually matter to people's lives and their health and their well-being, the stakes are higher. Therefore, to me, I think the reporting is a hell of a lot more honest. And I think that if you look in America, especially like a sport like football or basketball, you have reporters like Adrian Wojciechowski and Adam Schefter, who, when they report something, 99.999% of the time, it's going to happen. It's truth. Football, European football, is a much different media landscape. It's not based off of truth. It's based off of selling papers. And I think you said it earlier. It's about selling stuff. And that's why we... That's why we complain about it so much because since there's not so much at stake, since it is a sport in the end, it's not gonna, it's not determining the livelihoods of millions of people. It's not determining whether someone gets free health, proper health care or not. They have the ability to lie and to exaggerate and to embellish and to make shit up and get away with it. I mean, for two months, the Spanish newspapers were saying that Neymar or Kylian Mbappe would go to Real Madrid. Neither of them went, and yet all of the people that work for those papers still have jobs, which again tells me exactly what football media is about, which is it's not about truth, it's about commercialism. It's about gossip, and it's about selling a narrative to people by using kernels of truth to create a tapestry that a lot of gullible people buy. And it's why the Neymar hatred in the end is so vague and subjective. And it comes down to the flaw and it comes down to, well, I just don't like him for some reason. And it's not based in facts. It's based in this sort of vague nebulous of circumstantial evidence that if you really think about it, it doesn't really add up to a whole lot, but, Because it's a narrative that people want to believe because they, they were offended that Neymar left Barcelona for PSG, it makes the media's job a lot easier. And it makes their ability to sell this narrative for the purpose of monetary gain a much clearer reality.
0: When you're one of the most recognizable athletes in the world, especially in the modern social media age, the fans and critics expect nothing short of greatness from you. And when you're mentioned amongst the football greats, such as Liam Messi and Cristiano Ronaldo, they expect perfection every time you step on the pitch. Valley saint Germain superstar Neymar Jr. finds himself in this very position going into the 2018-2019 football season. The quarterfinal exit in the FIFA World Cup for Brazil seemed to add more fuel to what was already a heavily criticized Neymar. Most of the outlets that covered the World Cup chose to talk more about Neymar's overreactions to being fouled than his actual productivity for Brazil. It also didn't help that his club teammate, Kylian Mbappe, had arrived on the world's biggest stage at the tender age of 19 years old and helped France win their second FIFA World Cup. A casual football fan will probably ask themselves, why is this such a bad thing? What is so bad about a club teammate winning the biggest football trophy there is for their country? The only conclusion I can come to is, there's a large group of English-based media outlets who aren't too fond of the fact that PSG were able to lure away one of the biggest athletes in the sport from FC Barcelona. So any divisive tactic towards PSG as a club their players and fans, will be exercised through something masked as journalism. Within the madness of the rumors and narratives created throughout the football season, I try to filter out the garbage and listen for the facts from the players themselves. For most athletes, their words and productivity is all they have to stand on, and I make it a priority to evaluate them based off those two things. After the dust settled and Neymar finally arrived in Paris, I was eager to hear his personal explanation as to why he chose PSG. The Brazilian forward told the press of his PSG unveiling, I want to write history here. There are new challenges and I want to help write the history of the club. He also stated, our biggest challenge is the Champions League, but there are other trophies too. So this upcoming season, I only expect Neymar to be the best player for Paris Saint-Germain and lead the team on the pitch with his play. Winning the Champions League is not an easy feat. Real Madrid only make it look that way. The likes of Kylian Mbappe and Edison Cavani will be just as important, and having a season under their belt as a trio will go a long way for the league on Giants. At 26 years old, Neymar has another level I feel he can unlock. And if he truly wants to add to the history of the club, this is the season where everything is in line for him to take that next step. Neymar is back and healthy from his injury. The World Cup is over, the new league on season is underway, and the opportunity for a different Champions League winner is more plausible than before. Given the comfortability he now has with his teammates, Living in Paris and having a season under his belt to adapt to the physicality and talents that are in League One, I look for Neymar to take his game to another level and get some respect back on his name. John Olangi, PSG Talking.
2: No shirt in global sport holds as much weight as the Brazilian number 10. Wearing the shirt evokes comparisons to many of the greatest players in the history of football Pele, Zico, Ivaldo, Ronaldinho. Wearing the shirt indicates that you are the creative heartbeat of one of the World Cup favorites for a country that has won the trophy more times than any other nation on this planet. Wearing the shirt implies that you take responsibility for generating the aesthetically pleasing football that supporters have come to expect, or rather demand, from the team donning the Canarian green. Wearing the shirt reveals that you carry the load for the success or failure of a country for whom football means everything. To understand Neymar, one must appreciate the exceptional level of expectation placed on his shoulders since he was a child. He was always meant to be the chosen one for Brazilian football, and he truly emerged into the public consciousness at a time when Brazil was playing some of the least exceptional football in the history of the country. Neymar broke onto the scene around 2009-2010, when Dunga was still the manager of the Salasão. Though they were getting results, their style of football alienated many Brazilians. This was not the Brazil of old, they said. This pragmatic Brazil could not represent the country, they implored. And then came Neymar. His skills and tricks, knack for scoring golossos, and infectious style appeared as a brush of color on a gray canvas. At 18 years old, he was appointed as the one that could save Brazil. As he moved into a star role for Santos, wearing the same shirt that Pelé had made so famous in the 1960s, Brazilians yearned for his inclusion in the national team. Petitions were filed to try and force Dunga to bring him to the South Africa for the 2010 World Cup. There are expectations that he could restore stylistic integrity to Brazil. There are expectations that he was the second coming of Pelé. There are expectations that he would bring Brazil to the promised land. A year after the World Cup, he guided Santos to their first Copa Libertadores since Pelé for, played for the club in 1963. The idea of the second coming was only percolating. Dunga didn't bend for the South African World Cup and refused to bring Neymar. That, plus the team's poor performances, meant he was sacked in the aftermath of the tournament. Every subsequent manager refused to make the same mistake, and Neymar is very quickly integrated as the heartbeat of the Celisal. As Neymar has grown only the older, the pressure has only increased, and to fully understand Neymar means looking at his body of work under this mounting expectation. It means understanding that he has spent his entire career chasing ghosts, trying to reach incredible heights that have only been enhanced with the power of time and nostalgia. When Neymar tries to dribble three defenders at once, when he insists on playing 90 minutes in a meaningless friendly, when he makes arguments to take penalties, when he chooses to try and help Brazil win their first Olympics in Rio, when he makes the decision to move out from under Barcelona to be the main man at PSG, it is a response to the immense pressure placed on his shoulders, the belief that he has an obligation to fulfill a potential that candidly can probably never be fully realized. When reviewing Neymar's body of work, it is difficult to argue he hasn't responded to the scrutiny. At only 21 years old, he led Brazil to the 2013 Confederations Cup on home soil, winning the golden ball and scoring the final. He was responsible for carrying the burden at a tournament that was surrounded by protests, and at 22, he wore the number 10 in a World Cup on home soil, the first World Cup in Brazil for 64 years. He led Brazil to the semifinals before suffering a devastating back injury, which left him out of the 7-1. He then guided Brazil to the 2016 Olympics scoring a goal in the final, then scoring the divisive penalty in the final at the Americana, This is Brazil's first and only gold medal in football. He came back from injury to play at the 2018 World Cup, helping Brazil to reach the quarterfinals. He is the country's third highest goal scorer at 27 years old, as a creative midfielder, with a higher goals per match ratio than Ronaldo, who many people believe is the greatest number nine to have ever played football. Perhaps what is bigger than his achievements on the pitch than his statistics is his commitment to the weight of the shirt, his belief that he has a responsibility bigger than winning and losing. It is to entertain, to shoulder the burden for the most successful nation in the history of football, to make good on the emotional investment of millions of young Brazilians wearing a Neymar number 10 shirt across the world's most football-crazy nation. Rarely does a match go by without Neymar providing a gif worthy piece of skill, and maybe, just maybe, that tells us more about his response to the pressure of the shirt than anything else.
3: So, Chase, Neymar is 26 years old, and he has a lot more of his career left. But we're going to talk about his legacy right now as you see it. Now, let's say, theoretically, Brazil had a Mount Rushmore, and they put their four biggest, best, most important stars on that mountain, uh, that footballing Mount Rushmore. How close is Neymar to being on that Mount Rushmore right now if he never played again?
2: I think he may already be there, to be honest, Mark. And I think that that is something that sort of irks some people. But I think if you actually look objectively at the at the data that's in front of us, I think it's very difficult to not make the argument uh, that he would already be there to be candid he's only 26 and he's already the third highest goal scorer in the history of the Selecao if he scores 5 more goals he'll pass uh past Ronaldo and that would be an incredible achievement given he was a number 9 and Neymar is playing more as a creative playmaker type so it's a sta- it's a staggering statistic it's a staggering statistic uh, given his position and given his age and there's a lot of people myself included that believe that eventually he will catch Uh, Pelé on the all-time goal-scoring list, as Pelé sits at 77 and Neymar sits at 58. You also have to think about his overall contributions to Brazil. He helps them, he captains them uh, to their first-ever Olympic gold medal at home, uh, scoring the winning penalty at the Americana. He won a Confederations Cup at home in 2013. And I think that there's a lot of people that believe that he will win the, the Copa America next summer, which is going to be hosted in Brazil. And if he wins that, I think he certainly solidifies himself as sort of a member of the Mount Rushmore. Pelé is definitely out there. I think Garincha as well. Uh, you know, And there are a number of other players that I think you would definitely consider for it. You know, Brazil is one of those unique countries that has so many stars, so many fantastic players. Just a, it's a. Uh, I love the way that Robbie Blakely refers to it, a conveyor b- belt of talent, uh, over the last 50 years, of tremendous players who have contributed so much to the to modern football. And so, but I do think that Neymar has already passed so many Brazilians that we think are great. And if you look at just his trophy hall and the things that he's done both at the club level and for Brazil it's tough not to recognize that he is one of the greatest Brazilians to ever play the game.
3: And I think Brazil is unique in the fact that Brazilians have two things. I think when it comes to football, they have great footballers, all time great footballers, and they have long memories. Yes. So Neymar is the newest of, you know, sort of the great, 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 great Brazilian players. But, the Brazilian great players are remembered not for, you know, not for years, but for decades. Yeah. And he is still being compared to players like Pele and Garincha, which a lot of, you know, we're not comparing um Harry Kane to George Best. Yeah. You know, we're not comparing. I don't even think necessarily we're comparing Kylian Mbappe to Zinedine Zidane. I don't think that it's necessarily that sort of psychology when it comes to other national teams. So with Brazil, I, I still think that, and you can kind of correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that Neymar is still a semi-controversial figure in that he has such ginormous shoes to fill and he has so many ghosts to chase that if he doesn't get it all, there's always going to sort of be that thing in the back of people's minds where it's like, yeah, Neymar was good, but he wasn't Pele. Or, yeah, Neymar was good, but he wasn't Garrincha, Or, hey, yeah, Neymar had his moments, but Ronaldo, Ronaldo won the World Cup. yeah, Ronaldo, you know, Ronaldo was better than he was. So I kind of feel like because he's in this predicament, which is a good predicament to be in, in that he's in a country that essentially manufactures football stars in a factory somewhere, like a conveyor belt, as Robbie said. How do you think he'll be looked at in Brazil? I think he still needs to win the World Cup. I think he'll have
2: one more opportunity to do that in 2022. I think that's sort of a necessity for you. And I think that that is for a lot of Brazilians who are sort of judging talent over the years, over the last, and you're right to say, very long memories, right? When you judge talent... How many World Cups they won, if they won a World Cup at all, is a very, very, very important component in judging legacy. And ultimately for Neymar, what separates him from a lot of the other names on the list is the fact that he's never won one. And I think at this point, if he finished his career now and didn't win a World Cup, I think a lot of play- people would probably compare him to Aziku because... Zico was objectively an amazing player. He was part of Flamengo's golden generation in the 80s. He was part of that great 82 World Cup team that was inspiring to a lot of people, but ultimately never did win anything. And he is a great Brazilian. In my opinion, top five. But he, I don't think, I think when people put on the nostalgia goggles, they don't remember him quite as fondly as say a Hanaldo or a Hivaldo, or even a Hanaldinho who didn't play so great for Brazil. But won a World Cup, and that is a critical check that has to go into sort of the report card at the end of any Brazilian's career. I think it is what Neymar is missing. I think winning the Copa America next summer helps, but ultimately he will be judged by whether or not he's able to lead Brazil to a World Cup.
3: Yeah, and I always bring that point up because it's why I can never put Messi as the greatest player of all time. Because that list of greatest soccer player of all time is some of the greatest athletes of all time. You're talking about, like, we're talking, like, Pele in that category. For me, if you haven't won the World Cup, you're not on that. You can never be one. You know what I mean? Like, that's that's how I look at it. Pele is one because he's won three out of the four World Cups that he was in. The guy revolutionized the game. So for us to say Lionel Messi is the best player ever and for him to not have won a World Cup with talented Argentinian teams, let's not kid ourselves. These Italian these Argentinian teams he played with are very talented. It it's just you can never call him one. You can call him two, but you can never call him one. And I think with Neymar in the sort of context of Brazil, I think So many of those legends in Brazil won World Cups. And since that really is the measuring stick of Brazilian football more than, you know, Champions League trophies, that's what's going to matter in the long run. And I think he his legacy in Europe, on the other hand, is going to be very, very different in that I feel like he's not going to have the sort of, I guess you want to call it uh. Nostalgia that a Ronaldinho had. Like, Ronaldinho objectively has not had, never had the career that Neymar has had, even at this point. No. But, I think that if you ask seven out of ten Europeans, I think they will tell you that Ronaldinho is a better player. Yeah. I, I guarantee you, I think that's what they'll say. Because there's sort of a nostalgia with Ronaldinho. And there's a nostalgia with, uh, Brazilian Ronaldo. And there's nostalgia with some of these great Brazilians that came over and took the league by took the European leagues by storm. I think because of Neymar's attitude, and I guess I, I, I say attitude in a good way. I think a lot of people say attitude in a bad way. I think because of his disposition, let's put it like that, yeah. I think he has an uphill climb to becoming one of the all time great players in European football history. And it was always going to be a a large mountain to climb. But I think recent history, especially his move to PSG, his perception after the World Cup, I think he's going to have a tough time turning that around in the eyes of Europeans. Whether that matters or not is another story. But do you think that there's anything he can do besides just winning a couple of Champions Leagues with PSG or moving to Real Madrid and winning the Champions League there that would change his perception in Europe. I do think he probably needs to win
2: something in Europe, like a Champions League, um, or even unfortunately, I mean, I'm just saying, I don't believe that this is true, but unfortunately, like a La Liga, um, being the best player on the team, for people's opinions to change. I think that is ultimately something that stands in between him and how Europeans uh, perceive greatness. And I think part of it is that a lot of people discount what he achieved in Brazil. He won the Copa Libertdoresries with Santos. Uh, it was the first time that the club won the Copa Doris since Pele was there. Uh, but I don't think a lot of people see that as a worthy achievement to be honest. And I think people sort of wash out what he achieved at Barcelona by saying that he was playing with Messi, and those are Messi's trophies. they don't belong to Neymar. And so I think that that is the thing that ultimately is going to separate him, uh, you know, from a legacy perspective, is he has to win a Champions League, um, you know, as the best player at his club for Europeans to sort of, I think, really give him a seat at the table. Now, does that matter or not? I don't know. I mean, I don't care, but, you know, yeah. it depends on who you ask, right? But that to me is sort of going to be the separating factor, in my opinion.
3: And I think I want to kind of, End this on two very distinct sort of points, which is his legacy on the field and then his legacy off the field. And sort of not in the not in the sense of him winning anything, because I, I, I or whatever his perception is, because I think perception again is always in the eye of the perceptor. Not you know, it's not something that is set in stone or you know based on anything sort of factual. It's sort of however you see it. But what do you think sort of on the field sort of what his contribution is going to be? Because I feel like one of the things that he has done as a on-field player is he's, I think, brought back a bit of that Brazilian street flair to a European game that can be very rigid and can be very serious and can be very physical and can sometimes be very dour yeah. in how it's played. Yeah. And I think that one of the things that he leaves as his legacy, if he left the game today, he will be one of those guys that I think reignited sort of the, 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 the idea that the game can be played with fun and with flair, as opposed to sort of just about winning. And just about sort of getting the ball into the box and headers and all that stuff. I just, I, I think he's going to have a legacy on the field that's, and I use the two words, but I'll use them again, about flair and fun. Yeah, I don't think that people still,
2: there, there are people out there I think who still believe, don't believe what he's doing is real. Because there are a lot of people who didn't believe that that style that he plays could be applicable in the European game. Um, and Robbie said earlier on this podcast that Neymar took like a duck to water in European football. And he has. He's dominated. He came over from Brazil and he's dominated in Europe. No question about it. He's And he's done it in his way. He hasn't changed. He's he's still sort of, I mean, he's evolved as a player, right? You know, he's, he, His game has gotten better because he's only gotten older and sort of more mature and had more experience. But fundamentally, his game is the same. Um, he wants to make defenders look foolish. He wants to intimidate in that way and he wants to make the defender feel like he wants to he wants to live in the defender's head uh you know basically rent-free right and he does that on a week-by-week basis in european football a game where a lot of people said that that was impossible and i think that there are a lot of english pundits who believe that neymar couldn't do it in the premier league let me assure you if he came to england he'd do the same thing that he's doing right now in france and the same thing he did in spain the same thing he did in brazil except he would just do it in England. And I think you're right, Mark. I I think he has brought that back. And I think it's a wonderful thing. And I think one of the things that is really missing in the conversation about Neymar is the joy that he brings to the game. How entertaining he is to watch. How can you not sort of enjoy watching him nutmeg defenders put the ball past them, uh, make them look foolish, sort of dance on the ball. He's a tremendous, tremendous, tremendous player. And I think so often that is missing the conversation.
3: Yeah. And I, and I would say that I think I would rather if I, you know, in these, in these sort of long slogs that are European seasons, 38 games over nine months, I, I would rather watch a Neymar, you know, try some stuff than, you know, you know, ball from the, ball from the midfield, swung out wide to the, to the right back, right back dribbles it five times, swings it into the box, somebody tries to put a header in, that ball gets cleared, corner kick, corner kick gets put in, headed away, recycle the ball, put it out wide, kick it back, blah, 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 blah. You know, it, it's, you know, for the teams and for the, you know, for the organization, soccer is about winning. But as somebody who just wants to sit down and enjoy a game of people trying things and trying to at least have some sort of fun, like, I I appreciate what Neymar has brought to the game. And I I also appreciate sort of his off the field legacy as well. And I, I think his enduring, what I really feel is his enduring legacy to the sport. And I kind of want to get your take on it before I sort of go into where I sort of view him as a historical figure in the game.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think, Mark, we made the decision to name this podcast Neymar the Iconic Class, and I think this is where it comes in, is that he'll be remembered, certainly for his achievements on the pitch, but beyond that, I think he will be remembered for sort of shattering a glass ceiling uh, for player power in European football. I think he sort of... Endured is a great word. He has endured so much criticism. He has endured so much, um, you know, um, the spotlight being on him at all times, so much scrutiny. Um, but he's always been committed to sort of enhancing his own image, his own brand, and, and allowing players to have basically an equal seat at the table with the clubs. And I think that the game is only moving further in that direction. It's not moving away from it. And so when we look back and we look back at all of the criticism that Neymar has endured over the course of his career, I think what we will realize is that he was not the last, he was the first. And the game is only moving in that direction and that he has basically been a standard bearer over the course of his career as someone who says we deserve sort of an equal place
3: from a power perspective to the club's. And I call Neymar the iconoclast because I think more than anything else, iconoclasts are never truly appreciated in their own time. And when we talk about it from a sports standpoint, I I look at iconoclast in a really specific way, which is that you don't always intend to be an iconoclast. You don't always intend to change the world, but sometimes it just happens to be that way. And I look at a perfect example for me which is jack johnson the boxer uh the black boxer at the turn of the 20th century who was just being jack johnson and if you ever want to watch a documentary about jack johnson ken burns did about six hours of uh, a jack johnson documentary and it's absolutely tremendous because it makes the point that Jack Johnson was this flawed individual in so many different ways. But the thing that I think has endured over the years with him is that he did what he wanted and he didn't bow to the pressure of the turn of the century white supremacy. He dated white women. He openly dated white women. He knocked out white men to win world championships. These are things that he did not intend to change the world. He did these things because he wanted to do them. He did these things because it made him feel good. But in the end, he opened the door for Joe Lewis, for Muhammad Ali, for Floyd Mayweather a century later to kind of do a Jack Johnson-style gimmick just in a modern day. And I feel like Neymar, as an athlete, will, you know, as a pure just on the field athlete, I think his legacy will be nice. It'll be okay. But I really do believe that 20, 30 years from now, we're going to look back and we're going to see Neymar as that trailblazing athlete who opened the door for hundreds, if not thousands of young men. I feel like Neymar has given these sort of next generation of footballers the idea that they can build their own brand regardless of their situation, regardless of where they came from, and regardless of what, you know, the club thinks that they should do. I feel like Neymar has finally sort of broken that barrier of the club overall. And that as an iconoclast, he has gone and said, look, I will play for you. I will play hard for you. When I put the jersey on, I am going to, I am going to give my 100% effort. I'm going to play as many games as I can play. I'm going to give my effort. I'm going to try my hardest, but I do not play for you. I play with you in the sense that he is not beholden to these clubs. The clubs, in essence, are beholden to him. And I feel like in the end, if more young men and young athletes decide that they are going to take their careers into their own hands and help sort of balance out the power structure in European football so that players will have a seat at the table so that eventually the players will have so much power that they'll be able to unionize, that they will be able to Have a seat at the table, collectively bargain and get things for themselves that they would never have thought to get for themselves until Neymar came along and said that it's okay to be a little selfish when it comes to your business. It's okay to think about yourself. And this is where, as the iconoclast, Neymar will not be revered. And will not be revered for a while, but I do think that overall, when the book is written, Neymar will be one of the more important figures in the history of world football, whether he intended to be or not.
2: Thank you so much for listening to Neymar the Iconoclast. Mark, it was a fun journey putting this thing together.
3: Yes, it's been a long process, but I'm really proud of the work we've done, and we hope everyone has enjoyed it. I would just like to thank... Uh, all of my fellow contributors at PSG Talk who have allowed me to explore this topic and given me the inspiration as well. I'd like to thank my editor, Ed, for being very patient about when this thing would actually indeed come out. And now that it has, we can kind of enjoy the fruits of labor. Yes, definitely.
2: Um, and thank you to the people who have contributed to the podcast as well. From the Brazil side, Robbie Blakely, he's a freelance journalist located in Rio de Janeiro. And thank you so much to Jimmy Torrehone. Without his tireless work editing, none of these projects would ever be possible. He is the true technical brains behind all of this stuff. So thank you so much to him. Thank you again so much for listening. And if you want to follow anything on Canarian Blue related to the Brazilian national team, you can find us on Twitter at Canarian Blue or on CanarianBlue dot com. And if you want to follow PSG Talk, uh,
3: you can follow us at PSG Talk on Twitter. Uh, visit the website at PSGtalk.com. And uh, visit our Patreon page also on that to think of donating to our cause. And you can also follow us on Facebook and Instagram at PSG Talk.
2: Fantastic. I um, hope everyone enjoyed it uh,
1: and look forward to uh, producing more of these uh, co-productions in the future. Thank you very much.